हेलो एंड वेलकम टू अनदर एपिसोड ऑफ द माइंडफुल इनिशिएटिव पॉडकास्ट आई एम बियॉन्ड जॉय टुडे बिकॉज वी हैव बीन जॉइंड बाय स्वामी सर्वप्रियानंदा जी फ्रॉम द रामाकृष्णा ऑर्डर फॉर दिस पॉडकास्ट स्वामी जी इज द मिनिस्टर एंड स्पिरिचुअल लीडर ऑफ द वेदांत सोसाइटी ऑफ न्यूयॉर्क ही वॉज द नागरल फेलो एट द हार्वर्ड डिमिनिटी स्कूल इन ट्वेंटी Swamiji joined the Ramakrishna Math and the mission in 94 and he received sannyas in 2004. He has served in various capacities at the Bellur Math. Prominently he was the first registrar of the Vivekananda University at Bellur Math. To use that practical feeling of freedom and the real use would be spirituality specifically what you said prayer. Prayer is the recognition that my so called free will is not at all free underlying it is the will of god that's prayer tolerant is a very primitive concept it's like a, i am right but i'm just letting you live there is violence implied in tolerance so i'm vivekananda said when he came to the world parliament religions we, we don't just say tolerance we believe in acceptance and that acceptance solves the critical acceptance without further ado welcome swami ji thank you so much for being here thank you for having me nitesh so swami ji when we do these podcasts and interviews we begin with just knowing a little bit about uh, the upbringing and what role spirituality played in their upbringing i think it sets the context for our conversations further so if you can just tell a little bit about that uh, that'll be a good start for us Well Nitesh I am a monk of the Ramakrishna order and I really don't think there is anything particularly exceptional about me but having said that I think that the stories of the monks are all unique and very interesting to know it's sort of a pity that the monks do not discuss their uh, purvashram but I can uh, share some details so I grew up uh, in Bhubaneswar most of my childhood was spent in bhubaneswar early childhood in calcutta and uh, from class 3 up to finishing my mba i was at uh, bhubaneswar my father was a bureaucrat in the government of india my mother is a housewife the main thing was that the, my parents and uh, my grandparents also were very devoted um, followers of sri ramakrishna and ma sharada and swami vivekananda they were closely connected for two generations with the uh, Ramakrishna order and we had a ashram nearby and more importantly we had a lot of literature Ramakrishna Vivekananda literature at home and i was i guess i was probably the a part of the last generation before uh, the widespread uh, tv and internet and uh, social media and connectivity so all we had luckily i think were books and i became an avid reader so I think I I grew up reading a lot of books of Swami Vivekananda and lives of Sri Ramakrishna and other saints and all and it always appealed to me from the very beginning I was very interested in spirituality yeah, and I guess that's how it started and my parents used to take me to the ashram sometimes when I was a kid and after I grew up a little bit I started going to the ashram myself and I really liked it somewhere along the way I decided to become a monk and here I am 
Uh, thank you so much. And I hope you didn't mind me asking. I know it's something that the monks don't discuss. Uh, so I really hope that you didn't mind me asking that question. No, that's all right. So I was listening to one of your interviews uh, with Shweta Ji and Akshar Ji at Harvard when you were discussing about your experience. And, and one of the questions that came up is, are you happy with what you're doing? And I think that's an eternal question, which a lot of us keep thinking and asking, are we happy with what we're doing? You know, is this our dharma? Is this something that we would like uh, to continue doing in our life? And also in one of the articles in 2012 at the Vedanta Kesari, you mentioned that we can measure our happiness, which was mentioned in, I think, in the Taitreya Upanishad, Eka Munusha. And I felt that there is no uh, perfect happiness that I have encountered other than some of the saintly folks like you, who, are, who have the firm conviction that, yes, this is what my purpose of, of the life is. And uh, I think one of the questions that keep coming to my life is, you know, is what I'm doing making me happy? Like, you know, is this my right path? Is it what I should do? And I think it's just not me. So many others that I keep meeting on, on the journey, they're like, you know, I'm not happy with what I'm doing. Maybe I could do something else. How do you know that that the path that you're on is the right one, that this is what my dharma is and this is what I should continue doing? That's a really good question and an important one. Sri Ramakrishna used to say that uh, no matter how many zeros you collect, uh, it's still the value is zero. But if you put one before the zeros, then every zero just keeps on increasing in value. And the whole number, if you put um, one zero, then it becomes 10, and two zeros becomes 100, and three zeros becomes 1,000, and so on. So that one obviously is a spirituality. I mean, we are all in search of that one, which will give us a fundamental meaning and purpose to our life, which contributes to some kind of deep satisfaction and fulfillment in our life. And I have found it in spirituality. And I think spirituality is the answer, is the ultimate answer. It has been so for centuries and millennia in every civilization, particularly in India. Long ago, it was realized that there is this ultimate reality. And you have to search for it and realize it in, in your own life. And that is actually the ultimate purpose of life. Aurobindo, I like a quote from uh, Aurobindo where he says, if you do it deliberately, you're a yogi. And uh, he doesn't say this, but he just says all life is yoga. That, that's, his, that's the quote. But what it means is, if you're deliberately spiritual, if you follow some path of spirituality, then you are a spiritual, you call yourself a spiritual seeker. If somebody does not follow it, and just says, I'm just living life. But that also is on the same path to enlightenment, just a very roundabout and a very difficult and very unhappy path. So what I'm saying here is that one sign of maturity in life is to come to the spiritual path. It doesn't have to be Vedanta, like what I am practicing now. You don't have to become an actual monk, you know, giving up worldly activities and putting on an ochre robe. But it has to be spiritual in some form or the other. And uh, then only everything gets meaning and substance and purpose. You know, so you see what path I am I'm on. Is this the right path? I could be doing something else. No matter what path we are on, ultimately, None of it will be satisfactory unless that one is there in our lives and that one is spirituality. And I'm again repeating that spirituality in its widest sense. You could be a devotee, you could be a believer in any one of the religions or none of the religions. You could be spiritual but not religious. You could even have a kind of atheistic spirituality. You know, 
But some kind of deep spirituality uh, is a must in our lives. And I've seen that. And it's not difficult. I think lots of people come to the solution. People who are sensitive thinking and who look back upon their experience in life, who look around and look at the experiences of people in general, they come to this understanding. So that's one thing, that there must be spirituality in, in our lives. And that is the source of real happiness, of lasting happiness. Otherwise, there is no other way. Every other experiment in life will drive you back to this answer. Having said that, it is not entirely invalid to ask that uh, what is what I am doing right or would I be doing something else. I mean, quite apart from the question of spirituality, there is something called Swadharma. Swadharma is something that is in accordance with my own samskaras. There was an ancient definition of Swadharma, which was you know, predicated upon the social structure of uh, ancient India, which sort of defined what your role was in life. But that is no longer relevant with our modern society. The core idea, however, is relevant. Your own samskaras, if you work according to your samskaras, your own te innate tendencies, the chances of happiness and fulfillment are more. If you work uh, against your innate tendencies, maybe you're trying to fulfill somebody else's expectations, maybe it's just the force of circumstances, then uh, there'll be, always be a struggle and a friction and a kind of unhappiness. So yeah, these two things. One is add that one to your life, spirituality, in whatever form possible. If you're not satisfied, if you're unhappy, strengthen that first. Strengthen your spiritual practices, your prayer, your meditation, your service to others, your spiritual philosophical inquiry into the meaning of life, into who I am. Strengthen that, you will find peace and happiness coming, no matter what your actual occupation in life, what your actual situation in life is. That's one. And the second one is that uh, it's always good to do something, especially occupation, uh, to do something which is according to one's samskaras, tendencies. I think that is excellently said that we follow the path of spirituality and if it becomes part of our life, it is going to help us for sure. And uh, when I read the spiritual text, I keep uh, imbibing that this is what you should do. And, um, you know, Shankaracharya Ji, he came in uh, about a millennia ago and then we had the Vishishta and then, you know, more exploration. We had Dvaita, you know, I mean, it came. they came in sequence. Everyone's saying what to do. But the thing that I have found personally uh, very difficult is how do I do that? That question of how is where it becomes a little bit tricky for me huh. personally. Because, you know, when I was growing up, mom's like, Acha, you become, you study, you'll be doing good. You become an engineer, you know, it'll be okay. Then you do this. I think the, the how for the personal journey, if, if you can shed a little bit light, maybe from your own experience, I think it'll be helpful. Yes. Uh, one of our Swamis, He's a very senior monk of our order, Swami Satya Rupanandaji. I heard him addressing a group of youngsters, college students. And in response to this very question, how do we start? What do we do and how do we start? His answer, his formula was simple and effective. He said, start with the smallest and practice the easiest. Don't be ambitious suddenly in your spiritual life. So, for example, if you think that getting up early in the morning is uh, is good, and so from now on I shall rise before sunrise, and if somebody is used to getting up at 9 o'clock in the morning and suddenly getting up before sunrise, you're bound to fail. The body and mind are not used to it. And then we give up. Rather than that, 
start with the easiest get up 15 minutes earlier or half an hour earlier and that you can do your own mind will tell you that much we are capable of doing so start with the least and practice the easiest so that's how one starts again i'll emphasize that where you start you start with some kind of spiritual practice the simplest things are is there some spiritual reading i'm keeping it very open i'm not even suggesting that it has to be the gita or it has to be um, an advaitic text is there some spiritual reading in your life daily reading it has to be some spiritual text and also some kind of life i would re- recommend the lives of the saints you know swami vivekananda or or, or other modern and ancient and medieval indian and also non indian and across religions so if you actually read their their lives one gets inspired in one's own life from life life inspires life at basically no matter how many theories we talk about and philosophies we talk about when you actually read how shankaracharya or, or ramanujacharya or um, you know uh, sri ramakrishna chaitanya mahaprabhu about their lives we get inspired that we also want to be like that the second component you need in your life is some kind of devotional practice the simplest saralatam se shuru karo nyuntam ka abhyas karo so so you maybe light a diya in your house have a little place where you have a deity maybe offer a flower chant one shloka is there a service component to our lives so do we volunteer part of our time or energy or money for helping those from which whom we do not expect anything in return even if that is not possible and it's possible for many people even if that is not possible at least the work that we do in the house in the community and at, in our jobs can we convert that into a spiritual practice into the worship of god the lord at whose feet i put a flower that same lord i'm serving in the office when i'm writing a report in a computer connecting our day to day activities to god and finally the fourth component would be of course be meditation at least once or twice in a day preferably early in the morning and late in the evening when you shut down when we shut down everything shut out the whole world shut out all other people shut out all other thoughts and just focus on it could be on god it could be if you are a very minimalistic practitioner it could just be on your breath absolutely calm and quieten the mind down so these four practices and uh, if you are listening carefully you would have identified the four yogas which swami vivekananda talks about uh, so there is a gyana component a bhakti component a karma component and a dhyana component so this is where we start I mean, it's pretty easy. Just look at your uh, routine and say, are these components in place in my daily life? And then go from there. So thank you so much, Swamiji. I think the, the four yogas make a lot of sense. Uh, and then you, you speak about Swami Vivekananda Ji. And Swamiji's uh, 157th birthday anniversary is coming up in, in a few days. And... I remember he used to say you mentioned about the youth that youth are not useless they are just used less and you know that is something that has stuck with me for a long time that if we don't put people into action they don't do the work and I so agree with that but what is happening is that you know somewhere along the world that we are going to extreme views that you know what I'm doing is right and what he's doing is right and earlier i used to see that people used to come to a middle ground more negotiation is happening that and even in workplaces that's becoming a big issue that my way is the only way or it's the highway 
and uh, to bring both of them together on the table so that you know we respect the other individuals views we respect the other religions or each other's viewpoint i think a lot more uh, self reflection needs to be done I, that's what i personally think but my question is what is it that will put us back onto that path where we converge and you know become a better version of the human generation that we are uh, rather than going into a deep abyss which is polarizing us in many ways mm, that is true and this is actually a miserable thing which we see in our modern world it's not just in india it's even more so here in the united states as you if you see the news you'll see what is going on here in the united states first of all it's a sign of weakness that i if i cannot listen to another person's point of view if i cannot understand another person's point of view while remaining steady in my point of view if i am not open to persuasion if i am not open to change it's actually a sign of weakness it's not a sign of confidence or strength one of the definitions of strength is the ability to live with contradictions you have many different points of view you have many problems in your day to day life at home and in the office and you know none of them will be ultimately solved to your satisfaction if you solve one thing two more problems will come up that's the very nature of samsara to not only live with that to be comfortable with that to be able to operate with that and not to be a doormat you can always be very firm in your uh, point of view in the essentials of your view be very firm there's a beautiful taoist saying which i like that um, be firm as a rock and flow like the water in matters of essentials you stand firm as a rock and in matters of opinion in 100 different things you flow with them with the like water whatever is seems to be right whatever seems to be good you follow that you can change your point of view also you can uh, be agreeable with people but when what is absolutely essential for you in principles matters of principle stand firm like the rock what happened mostly is there are really no principles it's a very relativistic world and on matters of opinion on every little point we are ready to fight and argue and not even argue immediately demonize the other so that is a sign of weakness that is not a sign of strength in india imagine the reason why we have such an extraordinary so deep and profound philosophy indian philosophy i think is the richest in the whole world by far and one of the reasons we have had it is we have had tremendously different points of view cross currents of thinking who always engage with each other yeah. not just tolerant tolerant is a very primitive concept it's like a, i am right but i'm just letting you live there is violence implied in tolerance so i'm vivekananda said when he came to the world parliament religions we, we don't just say tolerance we believe in acceptance and that acceptance solves the critical acceptance i am free to put forward my point of view and justify it with reasoning you are free to put forward your point of view and justify it with reasoning and we are free to argue and come to our own conclusions and that led to the development of such deep philosophies and each of the schools over a period of 2 3000 years at the least you know whether it's nyaya or vaisheshika sankhya yoga the various buddhist schools the jaina schools which have not yet been fully explored so far by modern scholarship and of course vedanta they developed over thousands of years uh, with to tremendous depth and subtlety and that's because of this attitude that i am willing to listen not only willing i'm interested in what you have to say but you have to say it cogently you have to say it logically uh, present your case and uh, then we interact 
And in each school, it didn't develop by rejecting each other or by fighting with each other. They discussed and over time, the DNA of the opponents was incorporated into my school. My thoughts found their way into the thoughts of people who were entirely opposed to my way of thinking. As a result, which, you know, even today, if you look at Advaita Vedanta and Madhyamaka Buddhism, they look like mirror images. They are like almost the final product of Buddhist philosophy it was the Madhyamaka Yoga Acharya synthesis, which forms the basis of Tibetan Buddhism, for example, now. And almost the final product in some sense, not final product, but sort of highest product of rationality, logic. And I would say, that's my perspective, Advaita Vedanta. And how interesting that they seem like uh, mirror images of, uh, of each other. So yes, now how do we do that? How do we reach there? I feel a lot of the solutions are in Swami Vivekananda's teachings, especially his teachings to the youth. So to remain firm on your principles, you need principles in the first place. And that comes from having a goal in life. Swami Vivekananda said the first thing you need is a very high goal in life. Follow your own highest ideal. That is the shortest route to progress. Not because your teachers have told you, not because you've seen it on the screen or it's the latest fashion, but because you have read it all, you have investigated it and found it to be true and found it to be good for all, and then you adopt it. And be open to changing it later also if you, if you feel that something better has come along. So you have a goal in life. I often say that uh, if you ask young people today, what's your goal in life? What's your aim in life? Most people would be puzzled. And I don't have, they can give you a le lecture on what should be the goal of life, what we should do in life. But what exactly is their goal in life? Uh, I mean, in the sense of a, an ultimate goal in life, purpose in life, people uh, are confounded. And that's tragic. That is really tragic because this is the age of decisions. Uh, Peter Drucker, a famous management guru, in his management challenges for the 21st century, he said, for the first time in 20th century and 21st century, of course, we have choice. For millennia, our forefathers, they lived where they were born. They did the occupations of their forefathers. They ate the food and wore the clothes and married within the, that same community or caste. And more or less, the life was spent in the same way. They had very little choice. Unless you were a king or a mercenary or something like that, or a traveler, you were mostly stuck to what life threw at you. But for the first time, this is all Drucker. Drucker is saying that um, in late 20th and early 21st century, we are born in one place. We study in another place. We work in a third place. We live in another place and we maybe retire in another place. We belong to one race and we marry into another race. We eat food of various continents and cultures. We move from job to job to job, uh, skill set to skill set so many times in one lifetime. So much choice. And so much choice calls for wisdom. We don't have infinite time. So to make wise choices, a goal in life is important. And it should be a high and noble goal. One sign of a high and noble goal is, does it benefit others? Is it only for myself or does Others are benefited by it. So having a goal in life, I mean, just look at us as monks. We are actually very ordinary people. But it, in one sense, monks are extraordinary. What makes an ordinary person into an extraordinary person? It's just the goal that they have chosen. That's it. That has a transformative power. A very high goal. You choose that and you live your life according to it. Over the years, life gets transformed. 
I would say to young students who would scratch their heads when I asked them, what is your goal in life? I said, look, if you go to Belurmat, our main monastery, and you ask the junior most brahmachari who has joined the order yesterday, and you ask the president of the order or the senior most monk of the order, one thing they have in common is if you ask them, what is your goal in life? They will tell you immediately. Swami Vivekananda said, Atmano Mokshartham Jagatitayacha, for your own liberation and for the welfare of the world. That is the goal, and that is my goal. That has such a great transformative power. First goal in life. Second is, again, Vivekananda, faith in oneself. He's oft quoted. We don't pay attention, we don't listen, but we quote is uh, that uh, the old religion said, he who does not believe in God is an atheist, but the new religion says that he who does not believe in himself is an atheist. This faith in oneself, that I can, if others have done it, I can do it. If there's something that others have not done, that also I'll be able to do that. So that kind of faith in oneself. That's why Swami Vivekananda admired the character of Najiketa, found in the Kato Upanishad, who went to the doors of death, to the house of death, to of, in, in quest of uh, spiritual knowledge. So that Shraddha and faith in oneself. Uh, Swami Vivekananda, he stressed that, that um, if you have faith in yourself, then all things in life are possible. All this possibility of change and development are possible. I was just thinking how in modern thought, all these ideas have come to the West, especially in the United States. Uh, psychologist a few decades ago, Albert Bandura, he developed this concept of self-efficacy. Self-efficacy means the belief in oneself, that I have been able to do these things in the past, I can do them again. I have cracked this problem in the past, so this new problem I can crack now. You know, I have met many challenges in my life and I've successfully overcome them. That has given me a confidence that this challenge also I can face and overcome. He saw, this psychologist Bandura, he saw that students who had um, faith in themselves, that self-efficacy, they persisted longer with their question papers, they tried more. Those who did not have that faith, they got scared at difficult problems and gave up quickly. Obviously, if you give up, you're not going to succeed anyway, no matter how intelligent you are. And if you keep on persisting, the chances of you know, success, academic success, are more. So faith in oneself, a powerful idea. Swami Vivekananda gave uh, the idea of the importance of concentration, of focus, which is so important in today's life. The ability to focus our the powers of our mind on a particular topic. We could go on. One thing I would like to say, add here is before we move on, is that last year at Harvard, I met this uh, Vietnamese researcher, young Vietnamese scholar. He was working, he was a scholar of organizational structures, of organizational behavior in business. His, role, his area was business management. Now, he said he was looking at some of the key ideas, central ideas which have come up in the modern West. You know, belief in human potential, that the reality lies within you, the search for happiness, that, that is the goal, not just money or the search for fulfillment and happiness. These things that we have enormous resources, powers within us, which, which are untapped, we are not using. And he said, behind all of these ideas, he began to trace it back. Where have these ideas come from? And he said, every time his quest led him back to one name, Swami Vivekananda. And I was so happy to hear this. It has always been an intuitive feeling for me, but I could I had no way of academically proving this. And here is this young scholar who had no connection with India, 
had no particular interest in Hinduism, who had never heard of Swami Vivekananda. But because of his academic quest, is looking at some a set of the most powerful positive ideas in the modern West today, and he's tracing it all back to one person who came from India in the late 1890s and from 1893 onwards. In less than 10 years, he lectured across the United States and sowed these seeds. I mean, people don't know. They don't give enough enough credit. They have no idea about who he was. Many people don't know here, but he's at the source of many of these great ideas. I hope. He publishes soon and he writes books about it. Yeah, thank you, Swamiji. And uh, and I think uh, Swami Vivekananda, his inspiration goes beyond, uh, I think, uh, generations and generations. It's 150 years and I think people are just starting to read about him and, and you've, you've talked about the stories that he has talked about and so many other things. Uh, but one thing that you particularly mentioned was self-efficacy and, and then Shraddha that comes along. And this whole idea of faith. But what I found out is that that faith can go just beyond the boundary. You know, you can be confident, then slowly that self-confidence that comes into an overconfidence. And that overconfidence, you know, sometimes pushes people to the extremes, which I had mentioned a little while before. And I think that whole idea of taking, if it benefits the entire humanity, what you mentioned, if or not uh, entire humanity may be too large a word for someone who's starting their spiritual practice or in their earlier life, in beginning stages of their spiritual life. But what I have learned is, you know, this idea of self-compassion has been simplified a lot. Uh, now, there's this researcher, her name is Kristen Neff and Chris Germer. Chris Germer is at Harvard and Kristen Neff is in Houston. And they've come up with this idea of self-compassion, which comes from the Karuna, which comes from the Yoga Sutras. And uh, they simplify it a lot that what I'm doing that, you know, you remove the ego aspect of it, but make it simple, which has humanity, kindness and being mindful, which you mentioned. I think if we can simplify things in that regard, it will be easier for a younger generation to relate to it. Not just younger generation. I think people who are working as well, people who are older as well. And my question relates to that, that is there a way that we can start simplifying certain things like the way Swami Vivekananda did, right? He just simplified it into four yogas. Uh, is there a need to simplify our Upanishads in more simplistic terms where people can relate to it? And uh, that's my first question. And I think a follow-up question is that in the West, there is a lot of discussion about the science uh, backing it up. I don't know if we uh, need that all the time or not, because science is way behind where spirituality is. And I think it'll, uh, I don't know if it'll ever reach that point or not. But I think from an understanding standpoint, I think that gives people a lot of goals. You know, if they go to universities, if they are academicians, they're like, you know, can I simplify it and, and make it accessible to a lot more people who are, uh, who may not otherwise be interested or may not have time to go deeper into their spiritual studies. So if you can talk a little bit about that, I think it will be helpful. You are right. And especially in this country, I noticed that is, there's a great demand for uh, practical efficiency. Uh, the questions are, are practical. What good does this do me? I guess that's the spirit of America. Not just America. Now it's, it's spreading all over the world. I mean, we have the same mindset now in India also. My... Inner tendency is just the opposite. I'm more of a theoretician, more of a bookworm. So I've always been interested in the metaphysics of it and the epistemology of it and the dialectics of it. But yes, 
I'll recognize that ultimately when it comes to challenges of life, whenever I have had great questions and challenges in my life, it is the simplest direct advice from, say, from our text, especially from Vivekananda, which has helped me. Not high uh, metaphysical theories, not the most abstract kind of reasoning, no. Yes. So simplify, not simplistic, but practical, simple methods which we can put into use. So one of the reasons why mindfulness has become so popular here in the West is that it comes without metaphysical baggage, it comes without theological underpinnings. It's like a secular method which one can practice to get immediate measurable results. That's like the call here in in the United States. I'm not sure that I'm totally in sympathy with that kind of an attitude, but I understand the need for it. So practically, again, to repeat, what would be the few simple things that one can do? And in broad terms, I will not say I will prescribe a particular practice. That may depend on your tradition. It's good, whatever is available to you, what your tradition is. Again, a particular meditative practice. So it's up to you. In our Ramakrishna tradition, it's a mantra practice. So our guru initiates us into an Ishta mantra. And there is an Ishta Devata. It's it's a visualization, meditation, and a repetition of a mantra. So that is the fundamental meditative practice which we have. But it could be um, observing the breath in like a Vipassana practice. Or it could be any number of mindfulness practices. The core idea is to get some control over the direction of our attention. Recently at the Garrison Institute near New York, in upstate New York, we did a meditation retreat last year. So the retreat was on mindfulness meditation, Kashmiri Shaiva meditation, a dualistic bhakti, a tantric kind of meditation, and non-dual meditation. Now, a professor of Indian philosophy, Professor Endram Chakravarti, I was discussing the whole retreat with him. He said, at the end of it all, have a session where you look at all that you did. Find out the differences. Don't be in a hurry to find out what is similar. Find out the differences to to the extreme, analyze it threadbare, and then synthesize it. Find out what is common to all of this. So we did a short session like that after the whole retreat. We found one essential thing, among the other things, one essential thing common to all meditation techniques across various traditions is our attention. They are all dealing with our attention the control and direction and focus of our attention. So do something in that regard. Observe your breath, repeat a mantra, anything, whatever is there. So that's one very simple thing to do. Another simple thing to do is study. Um, Study as a spiritual practice. Study the lives of um, great persons. Study the great scriptures of the major religions of the world, especially the meditative spiritual scriptures. May not be the you know the ritualistic part or the more uh, common or mythological part, but the the spiritual parts of it, and a service component, as I said, to your life. So each yoga reduced to its basic ABCDs, its its basic practices, and one little component of that in our, our daily life. Uh, thank you. It reminds me of the three things Swamiji said, uh, Swami Vivekananda ji: hard to feel, brain to conceive, and hand to work. Exactly. I think yes. Uh, we to, For a wholesome life, we need all three, uh, brain to conceive and the cognitive ability, the heart to feel, the affective domain, and the hand to work out the cognitive ability, the three things which modern psychology speaks about. 
development of the human personality along these three lines is it's a wholesome development of the human personality perfect now we're getting towards the end and you know i have uh, uh, this question you know like the way you say that that you're this ordinary human being simple human being another simple human being just like you was gandhi ji and uh, i think in in your talks and my readings about gandhi ji uh, he says he's one simple man in search of god mm. but when uh, uh, when you look at their lives deeply you start to realize that uh, of course you know what you're doing is extraordinary what he has done is extraordinary but then there is a lot, lot of cost that comes along with it in certain terms that uh, you are giving up worldly things you're giving up materialistic things i, I remember him saying that i'm this uh, monk who just uh, dresses who needs just one or two pieces and i just need milk uh, and i think in his earlier book he mentioned that i don't need to learn piano i don't need to dress up like a gentleman when i was in i was training for a barrister i just need very simplistic life but when it comes to people who are uh, who are following that path sometimes it it is difficult for them to let go of the desires of the world of the materialistic uh, uh, materialistic things maybe materialistic but you know they might be they might be relationships in life as well people who may not be able to understand you how do you overcome that conundrum that what when i'm going on to this path which i feel is the right way to go forward hmm. yeah you're talking about that there's a cost to this kind of life let me tell you there's no cost at all it's all profit <laughs> so uh, i remember this is a nice story about swami brahmananda who was the president of the ramakrishna order first president of our uh, order and in belur math uh, this is like a hundred years ago a gentleman came and bowed down to swami brahmananda and said oh maharaj you are great you all have given up the world it's so difficult and you you are a really great people so swami brahmananda bowed down even more deeply to that gentleman and he said you are much greater than me why well i have given up the world for god for brahman for the for the infinite given up the finite for the infinite but you have given up the infinite for the finite you have given up brahman for the world <laughs> i've thrown away pieces of glass for a diamond and you have thrown away the diamond for pieces of glass so you are far greater than me because of course he was being humorous but i'll tell you one interesting thing this is a mistake to think like that that i am sacrificing anything particular i don't think i have i'm sacrificing anything at all i remember there was a like a panel discussion organized for uh, school and college students i think it was either in uh, lucknow or in patna or somewhere like that and i was conducting it and we had so, a very interesting panel uh, i have forgotten the names of most of them but but were very very interesting people one person was anand if i remember correctly he started this super 30 uh, that uh, for coaching kids for iits and he had an incredible track record um, so he was there then there was one gentleman who was from chennai he came from a very poor background but he graduated from iim ahmedabad and he went uh, in chennai he has a series of restaurants a chain of restaurants where they give food the leftovers they collect it and they distribute it among hungry people um, there was this another gentleman who was a silicon valley entrepreneur who gave up his job and came back and he has this place where he collects clothes discarded uh, but um, gives them to poor people who need these clothes and but the whole lineup was of such people and so one of the two questions was this very question that you all sacrifice so much to do you are doing a lot of good to others but you sacrifice so much so i tried an experiment 
I asked this entire panel, do you think you have sacrificed a lot? And all of them said in one breath, in one voice, not at all. We all feel very happy. We all feel we, are, we have got much more than what we have given up. I mean, if you tell us to go back there, my Silicon Valley job or that uh, multi multinational corporation job, not at all. So the joy and the fulfillment which comes. Uh, see, ultimately, we are all searching for happiness and fulfillment, all of us. Some search for it wisely, some search for it you know, otherwisely. <laughs> so if that's what we are all, uh, I, I mean, the person is looking for millions of dollars, the person is looking to uh, get power or to hold on to power, uh, you know who I mean. But so, uh, and uh, the person who wants to realize God or the person who wants to serve uh, humanity, all of us are actually looking for fulfillment. And um, if you are beginning to find fulfillment, you never feel that you have given up anything or you have sacrificed anything or it's a painful process. If you feel you have to give up a lot and it's painful, don't do it. What you feel will give you satisfaction. Swami Vivekananda said, follow your own highest goal. It is your own goal. And you feel it's a very high goal. Not, it's being, not that it's being imposed on you. You follow it, you will find happiness. It's the shortest route to progress. Uh, thank you for that. I think that just spawned another question in my mind. And I was uh, reading President Barack Obama's recent book, A Promised Land. And, and in it, he mentions about when, uh, when his mother was going through cancer, uh, he couldn't go back to Hawaii to be with her. And he was running for his first campaign, first or the second campaign, I, I don't exactly remember, in Illinois. And somewhere along the lines, he mentioned that maybe I've never thought that I'm the chosen one because I don't believe in destiny. But then things just happened and, and transpired. And we just talked about Gandhiji, we're talking about you as well. That yes, you may not think that you're the chosen one, but sometimes you are the chosen one and you are not aware of that. And this brings up the idea of free will. How much do we have? And, and you've talked a little bit about it before, or maybe a lot uh, about it before. But that's a question that I keep coming up with. If there is no free will at the level that you mentioned, like you know, when we are not able to choose and where we are being driven, what is it that free will really is in our day-to-day -day life? Does it really even exist? Like, Why do we even pray if you're not going to get the things that we desire for? I think the combination of prayer and free will is what I'm trying to understand. All right. I'll uh, share an article with you after this. It's exactly about this combination of prayer and free will. Uh, it's by the philosopher I mentioned, Professor Indam Chakravarti. Uh, he wrote this article, Why Pray to a God Who Can Hear the Anklets on an Ant's Feet? So it's a quotation from Sri Ramakrishna. God hears everything, even the sounds of an anklet on the feet of, of an ant. So imagine how tiny they will be and what tiny sounds they make, but God hears that. So his question is, that why pray to such a God who, who knows everything? So there and then the whole article is about free will. So what you just asked. This, so that you should read that article. It is really wonderful. The answer is given at three levels. I'll tell you what are the three levels briefly. First level, at what seems obvious to us. We feel we have free will. I'm going to raise this hand. Whether I will raise it or not, it's up to me. Now I've decided to raise it. Now I, ra now I have raised my hand. So I exercised my free will. I felt I had free will and I exercised it. So I have a choice to do or not to do and it's up to me and I decide. And we all feel like that. All of choice is based on, on the assumption that we have free will. Imagine all our justice system where a person can be prosecuted for crimes and charged with crimes is based on, entirely on the fact that the person had a choice not to commit those crimes. 
and uh, then did commit those crimes. Therefore, the person has to be punished. So you cannot have any kind of justice system, reward and punishment unless you accept free will. You cannot have modern economics. The whole economy depends on consumer choice. You're, you're, how freely we are choosing, we don't know. But anyway, so the whole of life, religion, all the exhortations, do this, don't do that. All religions have do's and don'ts. But that means that they accept that we have free will. Unless we have free will, what's the use of telling me to do this or don't, don't do that? So first level is we have free will. We feel it and our entire civilization law and economics and um, morality, all of it depends on us having free will. That's answer one, first level. Yes, we have free will. Second answer, not at all. We have no free will at all. If you investigate philosophically, theologically, and nowadays increasingly through neuroscience, uh, we, it seems that we really do not have free will. Science itself is, uh, at least mainstream science, is deterministic. Though somebody said that if you understand quantum mechanics and there's a probabilistic element there and that might give some room for free will. But in general, science is based on causes and consequences, cause and effect. So if there are effects, then there must be causes. And causes and effects are tied. In that case, where is the play, space for free will? It's the deterministic universe. Back to the very beginning of the universe, everything is sort of uh, predetermined. Determinism goes against free will. In scientific rationalism goes against free will. There are philosophical discussions which say that leads to paradoxes if you believe in free will. Their theology, every theistic religion ultimately says it's God's will, not uh, our will, whether it is in Hinduism, theistic Hinduism, or Christianity, and so on. And there are attempts to come out of this quandary. But upon investigation, the second level of answer is that probably there is no free will. And it seems that there is no free will. Final answer, third level of answer is that what Professor Arindam Chakravarti has said and some of the higher philosophies in different religions, they come to this conclusion. Use the illusion of free will which you have. You, you feel your free will and the second level proves that it's an illusion. You actually, there's no free will. Use that illusion to recognize that we have no free will. So that would mean what? It would mean prayer. It would mean spirituality. It would mean recognizing that there is something beyond this causal universe, something beyond this deterministic universe, which is actually free. You can, in a theistic worldview, you can call it God. In a non-theistic worldview, you can call it the real self. Swami Vivekananda said, free will is a contradiction in terms. There is freedom, um, but that's beyond the range of will. After you attain freedom, after you go beyond the range of will, beyond the level of the mind, there is freedom. The, the soul of the Atman is free. Brahman is free. God is free. The same reality, it is free. Once you descend into the realm of Maya, into time, space and causality, technically there is no freedom. Practically we feel freedom. So use that practical feeling of freedom and the real use would be spirituality, specifically what you said, prayer. Prayer is the recognition that my so-called free will is not at all free. Underlying it is the will of God. That's prayer. Thank you for that. And uh, I would love to read that article as well, but I think so well articulated, so well put in. So towards the end, we ask a few questions, which uh, Swamiji, you can answer in, in one word, 
one sentence or one paragraph and then you can choose not to answer as well so it's perfectly okay for all right sounds like fun yeah um one childhood memory uh, that brings joy to your mind joy well i remember you know in those days for seeing examination results you had to go to the board office and stand in uh, you know among thousands of kids and see the results so my higher secondary examination results i went and i saw and um, to cut a long story short i looked at all over the there was to paste it on boards so all the all the roll numbers and i found my roll number nowhere and i thought i had failed or had been the results had been withheld and then i found one little piece of paper where there were 15 names they used to give the top 15 in the state in those days so i looked at and others were looking at me pityingly that obviously nobody was there everybody was elsewhere he does he think that he is going to be one of the top 15 in the state and i found my name at the first so i was just like the state topper so that's a thrill for a young kid you know to suddenly find you yeah so that's a thrilling memory i have from childhood of course it's completely unimportant but uh, yeah no no absolutely i think i i there are so much joy at that time when when you were a child in in that regard yeah i know you read a lot so this question uh, will be difficult for you one book that you think that changed your life oh vivekananda without any doubt uh, not any particular book of vivekananda but generally reading vivekananda it changed my life and it keeps changing my life one place that you would like to visit maybe you've already visited or you would like to visit uh, around the world Well, Himalayas, I have, and I would like to go back again sometime. You mentioned the Himalayas. This is not a question on our list, uh, but I've heard you say so many stories about these Himalayan monks. Any anecdote from one of the Himalayan monks that you have met that just comes to your mind right away, and and that makes you giggle or laugh, or you know. Hmm. So there's this monk. Uh, he has passed away now, uh, but um, I used to go and sit at his feet and read Ashtavakra in Gangotri. so he was this he was in in his 80s very old monk and a group of monks used to assemble around him and read ashtavakra i still remember him sitting there surrounded we were we were surrounded we were in the gangotri valley but we were surrounded by these towering mountains there was snow on the top it was summer so there was not snow there in the valley itself but the mountain tops had snow there were devadar forests and the ganga bhagirathi rushing by at our feet uh, just below us extraordinary and a very high spiritual atmosphere and then he said i can sit so vivid he said with his hands pointing around all around ye sab jo hai na mahatma ji dikhta hai hai nahi kuch all of this you see it is just a sensory experience you know you see it hear it smell it taste it touch it but beyond it it has no existence of its own what he meant was he was teaching that it is consciousness alone which is appearing it's an all an appearance in consciousness Thank you for that story, and uh, I think I may know the uh, answer to the next question. Uh, just as a side note, I interviewed Dr. Balu, who has started the Swami Vivekananda Youth Movement in yeah. Mysore a few weeks back, yeah. and uh, his answer would be this. And I'm just thinking your answer would be the same. One person that you would like to meet in history. I guess it would be Swami Vivekananda. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he had the same answers for both questions, and uh, one last question. a message for your younger self a message for your future self oh that's a, that's a difficult one you know one thing is very interesting after becoming a monk one thing i've noticed the questions like where do you see yourself 5 years from now where do you see yourself 10 years from now all those questions lose um, uh, their their meaning altogether 
you have found the path and the goal of your life, the highest goal that our civilization has um, for humanity, that is spiritual enlightenment, attainment of moksha, nirvana, whatever you call it. Now we are on the path. And there is really uh, nothing else uh, to think about. You have to move ahead on the path and attain that. What else will you do if not this? Let me share this with you. Uh, at, uh, you would not expect that in uh, Harvard University, people will be talking about enlightenment and what is the nature of enlightenment. But they do. There are intense discussions going on in the divinity school, in the philosophy department. So in the philosophy department, Professor Parimal Patil, a very brilliant philosopher, formidably so, he asked me a question. Swamiji, answer this. People who attain enlightenment are very few in number. Yes or no? Yes. Then why should one follow this path? What's the point? So I gave two answers why we should follow the spiritual path. And he gave one more answer. The three answers are, my first answer was that everybody will attain enlightenment. It's just that it may not be in this particular life, because the whole game of life is for ultimately for attaining enlightenment. In this lifetime or in the other lifetime, we will attain. So it's not that we will not attain. The number of people attaining enlightenment is few and most people are failures. Not at all so. All of us will attain. Sri Ramakrishna used to say in Banaras, it's the place of Maannapurna. So everybody gets fed. You may get food, uh, you may get your food early in the morning, in the afternoon, and a very few will be at the in the very evening they'll get fed. But nobody goes away hungry. Similarly, for enlightenment, moksha, all will get it. So that's first answer. Second answer is once you are on this path and you begin to understand what it's all about, what else will you do? I mean, you may do something else. You may be in your day-to-day life, you may be a monk or a householder or a businessman or a professor, uh, whatever you are. But your ultimate aim becomes God-realization. Once your ultimate aim has become God-realization, call it enlightenment, moksha, nirvana, whatever it is, what other goal comes even close to it? So it is so wonderful that you know success or failure really doesn't matter. This is what you're going to uh, do Lifetime after lifetime, if necessary. These are my two answers. And Professor Patil gave the best answer. He said, see, Swamiji, those are good answers, but they are theoretical. I'll give you a practical answer. So, a wonderful answer he gave. He said that it's not really so much about enlightenment. Once you start on the path, in any religion, any spiritual path, sincerely start practicing spirituality, then the day-to-day benefits you get the peace you get, the sense of meaning and purpose in life uh, you get, even the little bit you're getting from day to day, that is enough to keep you going. So that is the third answer, that you are getting continuous benefit day day after day, week after week, month after month, throughout your life. And thank you, Swamiji. I think I, I agree with all three answers. And uh, I think these are wonderful message for... <clears throat> Sorry, my throat just uh, uh, choked up. Uh, maybe because we're getting towards the end. And uh, I would like you to end uh, end our conversation with a mantra. If you can uh, chant something for us, I think it will be wonderful. All right. Let me chant my favorite. Om Asatoma Sadgamaya Tamasoma Jyotirgamaya Mrityurma Mritam Gamaya Om Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. Om, lead us from the unreal to the real. Lead us from darkness unto light. 
lead us from death to immortality. Om. Peace. 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 Thank you so much, Swamiji. Thank you so much uh, for being part of this conversation and uh, this podcast. Thank you so much for taking time. I know it's really late in New York for you, but thank you again. Thank you, Nitesh. Take care. Be safe, everybody. Yeah, it's been a privilege to speak with Swamiji. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Mindful Initiative podcast. If you like what we do, please share it with your friends and family.